Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Fed signals rates to stay near zero for at least three years. We're playing the long game with Bloomberg's Matt Bossler, Bloomberg Federal Reserve reporter, the latest on the central bank. Plus, I found some bipartisanship in Capitol Hill. I got a Republican and a Democrat together to talk fiscal stimulus. You don't want to miss my exclusive interview with two House members in conversation on the stimulus. And we kick things off with Rick Grinnell. You certainly don't want to miss that. Yesterday, I spoke with Rick Grinnell. Rick's the U.S. envoy for Serbia and Kosovo, the former U.S. ambassador to Germany, and of course, the former acting director of national intelligence, DNI. So we talked about President Trump's trade policies, his relations with Russia and the Middle East. But I first asked him about the future of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Take a listen. There is a Russian offshore supply vessel making its way from St. Petersburg to the port of Mukran in Germany, and it has severe implications for the construction of Nord Stream 2. German Chancellor Angela Merkel has said that she is open now to rethinking that Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I want to get your reaction to these developments. Well, thanks, Kevin. Uh, Look, this is a serious issue for America and American policy. Um, I want to make clear that we've always told the Germans and our European partners that Nord Stream 1 is a part of a good diversification for the German energy market and for the European energy market. But Nord Stream 2 goes too far, and that is what the European Parliament has said. So America joins with the rest of Europe in saying to the Germans, Nord Stream 2 goes too far in light of all of the issues that we see from from Russia. uh, This is the reason why America has very strong sanctions on Russia, but we're also keeping the door open to talk, to uh, try to change the behavior of the Russians. As you say, this latest development uh, is very concerning to, to the United States. And we also have noted and um, are, are trying to work with the Germans as much as possible because a- Angela Merkel's own party, the Christian Democrats, are also having a lot of angst. We see individuals within the CDU saying to the chancellor, now is not the time. We should probably put this whole project on ice. We think that's a good idea. The U.S. Senate in, in Washington, D.C. thinks that's a good idea. The European Parliament thinks this is a good idea. So we hope that the German government will actually be multilateral and listen to their multilateral Western partners. 
Well, that's what I want to follow up on, because so many of the conversations that I have with Democrats in geopolitical circles, they make the argument that a Democratic administration would take a much more multilateral approach. But what I'm hearing from you is that there have been instances where the Trump administration has sought to use, albeit with an aggressive rhetorical tone, but has still sought to use multilateralism. Yeah, it's a, such a great question, Kevin. Thank you for asking it, because the reality is, is that we have a fundamentally different worldview than Joe Biden. Joe Biden has, has the idea that America comes up with one policy position and we put it into the UN Security Council mixer or the European government mixer and it all gets blended up and watered down and it becomes the lowest common denominator of a policy. We don't view multilateralism like that. What we view is, is that we fight for American policy, what's best for American national security. And then we look for partners. We look for regional alliances. That doesn't mean that you have to go to the UN Security Council and allow them to water down your policy or go to the EU in Brussels and, and cut the policy in half, uh, you know, America versus the EU and we somehow meet uh, in a, in a watered-down version where nobody, uh, nobody agrees. That's the old way of looking at uh, consensus. And, and we, we feel that America's responsibility is to the American people first. And America alone doesn't mean, I mean, America first doesn't mean America alone. America first means that we take the uh, American people's safety and prosperity first and then we try to form alliances around that so we're going to remake regional alliances uh the the perfect uh example is nord stream 2 where our nord stream 2 policy uh rejected by the german government is actually celebrated by the european parliament and so we're going to work very hard to be multilateral with a strong u.s foreign policy I want to talk about China because just recently the World Trade Organization, something that President Trump has been increasingly critical of, has declared that some of the tariffs that have been imposed by the United States on China don't fall in line with WTO guidelines. How, how, how does the Trump administration deal with uh, global institutions like the WTO while also trying to take a more aggressive uh, stance with Beijing? So I would say a couple of points there, Kevin. One, um, look at the example that the Trump administration has tried to use with the United Nations, which is some programs at the UN are very good, some are not. We're trying to get rid of the ones that are not. We believe that when you reform organizations, there's an argument to be made that you believe in those organizations rather than ignore them and let them become adrift. It's been 20 years since China has been uh, put into the WTO. When we originally envisioned China going into the WTO, we did it because we thought that in a couple of years, say four or five at the most, China would begin to act like uh, a Western-style capitalistic country. They would at least move in that direction. We didn't think that overnight that the Chinese would start pushing capitalism, but we didn't think that 20 years later that we would have the problems that we have in Hong Kong that we would still have Chinese stealing of uh, intellectual property, that we still would have the Chinese um, having an economy that's based off uh, taking other ideas and just replicating them 
and ignoring the rule of law and human rights. And so we think that it's not too much to say that having the Chinese in the WTO has been a disaster. Uh, we, I don't think that they should be a part of the WTO. They've demonstrated over 20 years that they are not willing to move in the direction that, that uh, the WTO wants to, which is capitalism. And so uh, I think that we are going to create organizations like the, the new USMCA trade agreement, where th there are provisions in there of problem solving outside of the WTO because we are admitting to the world that the WTO is failing. You know, and, and, and lastly, uh, Middle East front and center. We've seen the role that Israel has played uh, in normalizing relations with uh, now two Gulf Arab states. And then, of course, the recent developments that you, of course, sir, were front and center for with regards to Kosovo and Serbia. Israel playing a key role in that uh, agreement as well. What role has Iran factored into in terms of bringing some of these traditionally very um, combative areas and regions to, to working together? Well, the Americans and the Europeans have had the same goal with Iran, which is to deny them a nuclear weapon. We've had fundamentally different tactics. The Europeans want this watered-down consensus and status quo uh, dealing with Iran, the Americans, and specifically the Trump administration, has said, that doesn't work. We need to try something different. I think the historic signing of peace deals shows that a more aggressive Trump administration approach is working. We would still be in this status quo foreign policy establishment muck if it was uh, not for Donald Trump. He's challenged the Europeans to think differently. I also will note um, that the Europeans have not been supportive of our strategy in the Middle East. That was Rick Grinnell. He, of course, is the uh, former acting director of national intelligence, as well as the former ambassador to Germany for the United States and was the special envoy for uh, the Serbia-Kosovo uh, deal, talking all things geopolitics. Coming up, we pivot back to the United States. We're talking about the Fed, the central bank. What went on in the markets? We're going to check in with my colleague, Matt Bossler. He is Bloomberg Federal Reserve reporter on a busy day for him. Lots to get through. Uh, that's coming up next. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up in the next half hour, President Trump speaks to reporters. I'll keep you, keep you uh, plugged in, tapped in, tuned in. 
to all the headlines coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Matt Bosler's with us. He had a busy day. He's the Blue- <laughs> he's Bloomberg's Federal Reserve reporter. Matt, how are you? Oh, I can't complain. Hanging in there, Kevin. All right, so let's get right to it. The Fed has signaled that rates are going to stay near zero for at least three years. The Fed on hold until inflation at 2% set for moderate overshoot. And uh, 13 of the 17 officials forecast rates are going to be on hold through 2023. What do we know? What do the FOMC tell us? Yes, so basically what they're telling us is that they are going to be slower to raise rates off the zero lower bound this time than they were last time around um, in 2015. They're basically going to try to wait until the unemployment rate is much lower, um, until inflation is higher. Um, and that's the big takeaway that they um, you know, want people to take from this decision. All right. And so they say the FMC wrote, quote, expects to maintain an accommodative stance of monetary policy, end quote, until it achieves inflation averaging 2% over time and longer term inflation expectations remain well anchored at 2%. Uh, this, according to their statement, re- uh, released earlier today following their two-day policy meeting. We actually have a soundbite from what Fed Chair Jay Powell said. Take a listen to Fed Chair Jay Powell, what he said at a press conference following the decision. Here he is. The recovery has progressed more quickly than generally expected, and forecasts from FOMC participants for economic growth this year have been revised up since our June summary of economic projections. Even so, overall activity remains well below its level before the pandemic, and the path ahead remains highly uncertain. It is it is really incredible. I mean, the chart plays out on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. The S&P 500 fastest recoveries following a bear market from record high to new record. It only really took 126 trading days between February and August 2020 in order for the market really to to go back up. It it's it's really incredible just when you think of just the the market reaction. However, Fed Chair Powell Matt is also saying, "Hey, you know what, Congress, we might need some more stimulus." Yeah, absolutely. And that was a really big takeaway from his press conference after the decision was announced. And, um, you know, importantly, one of the things he said during the press conference was that um, Fed officials in the forecast that they put together and released today are really assuming uh, more fiscal stimulus, some sort of deal. And so, he's, um, you know, this faster than expected pace of recovery that they're signaling, which, you know, should get us back down to a, a 4% unemployment rate in the next few years, so on and so forth. Um, that's really contingent on, on Congress getting something passed. And obviously, um, you know, as you know better than I do, that's uh, looking less and less likely. And so that's a big open question, um, you know, not only for the overall economy and um, everybody relying on that money, but for the Fed and, and for what it's going to be doing with interest rates um, in the next few years here. It, it's, uh, yeah, it's going to be fascinating. Coming up in the show, uh, we're going to head to Capitol Hill and I'll, and I'll take it to my interview with a Democrat and a Republican, Congressman Gottheimer and Congressman Reed, a Democrat and a Republican, respectively. Because they feel that they've got a fiscal stimulus bipartisan plan, whether or not Speaker Pelosi and President Trump or Secretary Mnuchin agree, I don't know. I don't know. But we're going we're gonna to talk about it. All right. So in terms of what else the Fed can do and what they have at their disposal, do we get any clues, Matt, from uh, Fed Chair Powell today about really what is going to happen in the long term beyond just uh, beyond the rate? 
Well, so this is the interesting thing is that we tend to really focus a lot on interest rates um, on these Fed days and what they're planning to do with those, because obviously that's very important to investors in the bond market. And they, you know, it matters a lot to them whether the interest rate outlook changes just a little bit up or down. That can, you know, that means a lot for trillions of dollars worth of financial assets. But um, in terms of other things that sometimes go under the radar, we obviously have all these um, emergency lending facilities that the Fed has set up and rolled out um, in response to this pandemic just to get uh, businesses and households uh, through the next several months um, and kind of back into that recovery mode. And one of the things that came up in the press conference today uh, from our colleague Chris Condon, he asked, uh, Jay Powell about the Main Street lending program, which, um, you know, as we know, has not made many loans. And uh, potentially one reason for that is that, according to our colleague uh, Katerina Sariva, she just reported um, yesterday that um, uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has been advising banks that are participating in that program to target zero losses on the loans that they're making through that program. And so that raises a real question of, if you have these emergency loans that you're making, but you're not willing to risk any losses, then how do you actually get that money out the door? And so that was kind of a question that um, Powell had a little bit of trouble, trouble answering today in the press conference. But he did say that, um, you know, the Fed is looking at making changes to that program. So I think that's uh, something that is very important and impactful for, for Main Street and everyday businesses and households. And um, it's definitely something that we're, we're keen to hear what the next steps uh, on that will be. Well, of course. And, and you know, I mean, you you know this uh, from, from your days at the University of Michigan, right? I mean, and, and you know, but they're going to have to convince an entire generation of folks for their higher inflation quest. I mean, for the Fed, Matt, to really have this new push for higher inflation, that means that they're going to have to craft all of these new tactics to convince Americans and students of the economy that go back generations and all of their professors that they're not going to clamp down on the rising prices. How do they do that? How does Fed Chair Jay Powell do that? Yeah, so I think the way into that is really just um, establishing that they're going to to let unemployment get very low before they start raising rates. And so that's what they're signaling today. That's different from what they did last time. Um, But if you believe, you know, kind of the textbook models, um, the way that works is, you know, the economy gets hot, unemployment gets low, people's incomes go up, they have more money to spend, um, and that pushes prices up. So that's the way to do it. Um, And going back to, you know, kind of this Main Street lending program and the short run versus long run issue, um, you know, the the reality is that, you know, the short run, the long run is, is kind of a series of short runs here, right? So, you know, what we do in the short run the next couple months here is going to have a very big impact on uh, the way that the long run ultimately shapes up. And if they don't get the response right in the next couple months with some of these emergency programs, then they could really be setting up for a situation in which unemployment remains, you know, needlessly higher than it otherwise would have been for several years. And that just makes it that much harder to get inflation back up to their target and really convince people that they mean what they're saying, that they're putting their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Let's go global just for my final question to you, Matt, Matt Bosler, who is, of course, Bloomberg Federal Reserve reporter. Going global, how does the U.S. central bank response compare to the Europeans and to the Chinese? So uh, the U.S. Uh, central bank has more latitude um, than, you know, some of these other central banks, um, especially in Europe and Japan, where um, and, and in, in the UK, where 
um, you know, the, the goals um, of the central bank and the way they go about those goals are dictated much more by uh, politicians. And so um, the Fed is kind of leading uh, the way um, with all of that hard one independence that they've fought for over the years. Um, and that is kind of, you know, creating an issue for some of those other central banks because, of course, that has implications for exchange rates. Um, you know, the dollar has been weakening, especially against the euro, and that's putting more pressure on central banks there. So it'll be interesting for, you know, us uh, watchers of the global economy and global policy to see how some of those central banks find a way to respond to that and then how that eventually, you know, potentially uh, has repercussions, you know, for the U.S. economy and the Fed. So it'll be another couple of interesting years here of trying to come out of this for everyone and watching the sort of global game theory play out, if you will. Speaking of game theory, October 24th, Big Ten football returns. You're a Michigan guy, so, you know, Matt Bosler, we'll leave it there. I'm a Penn Stater, so I guess, uh, hey, who says I, don't get, I can't get along with people, right? Thank you, Matt, for breaking that down. He is Bloomberg's Federal Reserve reporter, Matt Bosler. Uh, coming up, we head to Capitol Hill, talk politics domestic. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Fed signals rates are going to stay near zero for at least three years. A complete reaction to the FOMC. And President Trump wants a vaccine faster than anyone in history has made one. All of that, plus the latest on fiscal stimulus. I'll take you live to Cap. I'll take you to Capitol Hill, where I, I got a Republican and a Democrat together to talk at the same time in agreement on fiscal stimulus. You don't want to miss that. The Problem Solvers Caucus, as they're calling themselves. Lots to get through, but uh, the big story that's driving that we're also going to touch on is on Oracle. Uh, and the CFIUS ruling, which has yet to come. Uh, this is Republican lawmakers have also said uh, that they are uh, a little bit, little bit nervous about that TikTok Oracle deal. And we're also awaiting President Trump to give a press conference on the back half of this hour. I'll keep you, keep you up to date on those headlines. All right. We begin, though, with uh, the big issue. Uh, and that, of course, is the 2020 campaign and the economy, because the Fed signaled that they are going to keep rates near zero for at least three years. Reading from the Bloomberg Terminal, the Federal Reserve left interest rates near zero and signaled it would hold them there through at least 2023 to help the U.S. economy recover from the coronavirus pandemic. The FOMC said that they, quote, expects to maintain an accommodative stance of monetary policy, end quote, until it achieves inflation averaging 2% over time and longer term inflation expectations, get this, remain well anchored at 2%. We actually have a soundbite from uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell. Uh, Take a listen to uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell when he spoke uh, after their two-day meeting. Here he is. The recovery has progressed more quickly than generally expected, and forecasts from FOMC participants for economic growth this year have been revised up since our June summary of economic projections. Even so, overall activity remains well below its level before the pandemic, and the path ahead remains highly uncertain. 
The path ahead remains largely uncertain. This has the diminishing hopes for fiscal stimulus now, uh, but it doesn't look like we're going to get a deal before before November 3rd. Jared Kushner said it the other day on CNBC. Joel Payne's with me, Democratic strategist, former director of African-American media outreach for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. William McGinley returns, principal at the Vogel Group, former White House cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. William McGinley. What do we know? What do we know about the economy? I mean, you get some uncertainty coming from the central bank in terms of them saying, hey, Congress... Do your job. We need some stimulus. Yeah, I think that's exactly what uh, Chairman Powell was trying to do, which was to tell uh, the members of the House and the Senate to get back to work and get another stimulus package done. You know, there's been some hopeful statements made uh, in the past couple of days, whether it was the Problem Solvers Caucus coming out with their compromise, uh, which had limited bipartisan support. That was about a $1.5 trillion deal, including stimulus payments to families and to uh, re- replenishing the PPP program and trying to to provide some relief to the states and, and, and public health care systems. Uh, obviously, the Senate Republicans tried to do their uh, what they called the skinny bill, which was kind of a, 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 a more targeted legislation. And the House Democrats had already passed their HEROES Act, which was over three trillion dollars. Look, there's room here for a deal to be struck. The parties just need to start talking. And I think that's the uncertainty that Chairman Powell is talking about, which is we need the the political actors and the two branches of government to come together uh, to put together a deal to help keep the American uh, businesses afloat so that once we come out of this pandemic, uh, Americans can keep their jobs or recoup their jobs. And, you know, Joel, I mean, has has Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden, has he benefited from this being really a campaign not so much about the economy as the leading issue, but because the pandemic has has you know refused to rear its ugly head from from the headlines. Look, I think the campaign cycle has certainly come to Joe Biden in many ways. I think that President uh, Trump's comfort zone has always been the economy. It's what his most resilient numbers in the in the polls would show. Um, but I think Biden has been very proactive in talking about his plans for the economy. Um, I think Democrats on the Hill, Nancy Pelosi, as uh, William mentioned, uh, had a very ambitious Heroes Act. She's been very active and vocal about her desire to come back and to do something on uh, COVID relief uh, again, even while Congress is uh, somewhat out. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of pressure on the president and Republicans. And um, I think something that I'm hearing from folks I'm talking to um, out in the progressive space is a frustration that you, you talk about balancing the budget, you talk about paying for things um, only when it comes to things that workers need, right? Like if you're, you're passing the TCJA, no one's talking about how much it costs, which it costs a lot, right? But people talk about how much it costs when you're talking about supporting workers and, and giving people just enough to get by. I've got a lot of people I've talked to on the Hill, I'm on the Republican side, who were frustrated that it was too generous earlier in the summer the relief package that was passed. And that is fully misaligned with where a lot of voters are thinking about what they need from their government right now. You know, I, I, it, I said this to, to, the, uh, to the lawmakers that I spoke with, uh, Congressman Reed and Gottheimer, Republican and Democrat respectively. I said, you know, your parties are looking at this entire discussion uh, 
very differently because you've got one party, the Republicans, who are saying we got to get people back to work. We got to get people back to work. We can't, you know, bail out, you know, these folks. We got to incentivize people to come back. And I don't think, you know, I'm not one of those people who thinks that, you know, I think people have different ideas for how to fix the problem. Let me just say that. And you've got Democrats who are saying not so fast, you know, not not so fast at all. Um, and, and even companies in the private sector, William McGinley, are having to grapple with this. When you've got J.P. Morgan saying to top executives, get back here by, by you know, September 21st. But then, you know, then they got to send people home and whatnot because there's outbreaks, colleges and universities. They're not divorced from this from this issue. We all saw what happened at Notre Dame uh, and, and, and whatnot. The Big Ten, they're coming back. I mean, everyone's everyone's sort of figuring this out together. William McGinley, but I guess from a political lens, there's only 45 plus days, 48 days until the election. And there isn't time for for President Trump to be able to have, let's figure this out. He's got to figure out the political strategy now. Yeah. And look, I I think there's two data points um, that I try to look at. Number one, um, I found it interesting that Speaker Pelosi said that she was going to keep the House in uh, for an extended period and yes. until sometime in October, um, be looking for a deal to be made on stimulus. I think what she's probably getting some pressure from her caucus, and specifically the 30-plus members who made up the majority uh, when she came into power in, in 2018, uh, that Democrats who won in Trump districts, um, the so-called majority makers, as she likes to call them. Some of them have started to publicly break from her and call for uh, some sort of compromise and stimulus. The second one is, is if we remember, we shut down the economy and went into social distancing, um, number one, because of infections, but primarily because we were worried about overwhelming the public health system, and specifically the hospitals, that if you had an X percentage of infections would result in hospitalization, and of those hospitalizations, so many would have to move over to the ICU and intubation on ventilators that there was only limited capacity to be able to handle that. What we're seeing with some of the spikes that we've had now is that we've had some infection spikes, but we're seeing a decrease in the hospitalizations um, and the intubations. That doesn't mean that this virus is not dangerous. It means I think the country and the medical system is beginning to figure out how to treat this. And the businesses are reacting accordingly. Businesses want to open up, but they want to do it in a responsible way. Um, they want to be able to serve their customers, whether it's an outdoor space or a limited capacity in an indoor space. Um, they want the political branches to come together and get a stimulus deal uh, to give them a bridge, basically, until we get on the other side and figure this out with a vaccine or whatever therapeutics are actually going to help eradicate um, this virus. So what we need is the short-term deal because we need to be able to get past the election so that these businesses can survive. Well, and, and and we're going to talk about this coming up, but I think it, I think it bears repeating. I mean, the the moderates just put out their proposal yesterday. You've got Speaker Pelosi saying, putting out some statements saying that she's not in favor of this deal. But I mean, if nothing else, it kickstarted a conversation. And now Speaker Pelosi's saying, as you just mentioned, that they're not going to leave until until they get something in mid October. You know the, what you just said uh, about those those Democrats who won in Trump districts, the Connor Lambs of the country. You know, Joel Payne, do they, is this where they have to use their leverage? Is this where they have to say, you know, look, if you have to work with President Trump, work with President Trump, but they need some type of fiscal stimulus in these swing districts, Joel? I mean, possibly, but politically speaking, those moderates are not feeling a lot of heat. Those Democratic moderates aren't feeling a lot of heat right now. 
This is a, uh, a from an electoral political perspective. This is very much slanted in favor of Democrats. Now, from a real world perspective, obviously everybody wants to get something done. And from a business perspective, we want to get the country moving. But politically, there is not the pressure there that I think some might assume. Also, I would point out, remember the last relief package was very business focused. And I think that's very much in Speaker Pelosi's mind, that she kind of gave in on a very business-friendly, business-centric package last time around. And I think she's feeling a lot of pressure from the left and from progressives to make sure that this is balanced in terms of direct cash payments and direct uh, support to families and making know. sure that things go right to where people need it the most. My buddy Joel, you know, I, I'm going to push back just a little because whether it's in Politico playbook where they're saying Dems in disarray, it's, you know, it's starting to brew, Joel. It's starting to boil. Yeah. You know, you've got the moderates, for them to announce a plan and to say, hey, here's something. Yes, you can make the case politically. It provides them some cover. I hear that argument. But for them to go public and to say, you know, we're not necessarily with the AOCs and the Elon Omars of the world, uh, you know, and, and they want a seat at the negotiating table because I don't know. In the short term, I hear your point that they might not have the political pressure. But, Joel, in the long term, they start if they start getting lumped in with AOCs of the world, that's not going to that is not going to play. Well, all you got to do is go to an IHOP in Pennsylvania. That is not going to play not well. Quite at sure all. The- I take your point, Kevin. I'm not quite sure the AOC, Ilhan Omar, boogeyman argument works quite to the level of effect that um, maybe conventional wisdom might suggest. Um, Joe Biden is at the top of the ticket, and Joe Biden is a very comfortable person for these people to run with. Again, we're talking politically. Yeah. Um, there's a very yeah. important real-world impact, and I do think that those moderates probably feel some responsibility to be at the table to offer a way forward to reach a deal. But I, I certainly don't think they feel the political pressure that maybe we might assume they would. It's going to be remarkable. All right, coming up, we're talking vaccines with the panel because everyone's got a different timetable for this vaccine. But the bottom line is we're going to get one within the next nine months. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com iHeartRadio and Spotify. Great panel today, folks. Great, great panel with the one and the only Joel Payne and the one and the only William McGinley. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. 
My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Let's talk vaccinations. When are we going to get a vaccine? Did you see this? UAE, they're working with the Chinese on vaccines that, you know, uh, the Western world is very um, apprehensive of the China vaccine as well as the Russia vaccines. Uh, And here in the United States, there's a handful of different uh, vaccinations that are going through the approval process uh, and and the like. But everyone has a different timetable, whether it's Fauci or Dr. Fauci or President Trump. Uh, Take a listen to all of the conflicting vaccine timetables. Here it is. The previous administration would have taken perhaps years to have a vaccine because of the FDA and all the approvals. And we're within weeks of getting it, you know, could be three weeks, four weeks. I think it's more towards the middle to the end of the year that you could get people vaccinated. You're asking me, when is it going to be generally available to the American public so we can begin to take advantage of vaccine to get back to our regular life? I think we're probably looking at third late second quarter, third quarter, 2021. So I hear that and I think, okay, it's going to happen within the next nine months. Okay. I mean, and and then yes, everything in the world in America is politicized right now. So I want to bring back into the panel, Joel Payne, Democratic strategist, William McGinley, who's our Republican insider. And, And Joel, you know, Tyler Pager at Bloomberg reported that the Joe Biden is getting updates on the vaccination process and everything and whatnot. But at the end of the day, President Trump can't rush it. Joe Biden can't rush it. But what I just gathered is that this is likely going to happen within the next nine months. I think that's probably a fair uh, bit of speculation there, Kevin. And I think what jumps off to me so much about the piece is you've heard so much um, lack of, of trust from, from public officials and from people at large in the public, just anecdotally. Um, talking to people in my circle, folks don't feel comfortable with uh, potentially taking a vaccine that is a part of, let's just say, President Trump's um, kind of, uh, you know, health uh, department or his, you know, I think I think the feeling is maybe that the president is trying to rush this. And I'm actually worried about public confidence and public trust in the vaccine process, because to have an effective vaccine is one thing, but to actually be able to implement an effective vaccination program is wholly different. I think because of the president's failures in earning public trust overall with coronavirus, I'm very concerned about that. Okay, so in an interview for the Bloomberg Equality Summit to take place on September 23rd, Dr. Fauci says, quote, that he's reasonably confident, end quote, that at least one vaccine will be available by November or December. But the wide scale adoption of a vaccine, along with continuing, though less intense, reliance on social distancing and mask wearing would allow a return to near normal by the end of 2021. So I hear this and and what I hear is public health officials and and, and political officials in both parties sort of educating the public in real time that it's not going to be like this, you know, they can't have that famous photograph of, of the couple kissing in the streets of New York City when World War II ended because then everyone would flood the bars. And we can't, you know what I mean by that, William McGinley? It's, it's, it's got to be, you know, it can't be like a headline. We have a vaccine. Everything's over. Run out and party. It can't be like that. It's got to be this gradual lifting of, of social distancing. But I think that what Dr. Fauci is saying, OK, military personnel, first line responders might be able to get the vax uh, by the end of the year. So who, they're both right. You know what I mean? Both the both parties are right. 
Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Kevin. And I think that uh, both government officials, the campaigns, um, and the American people need to take a pretty sober uh, view of how this is going to happen. I mean, these the trial vaccines are still during the trial period of the FDA process. Um, we have yet to see the results of those, but everything that we're getting um, from the, the career professionals uh, like Dr. Fauci is that they're progressing nicely um, and that they think that they're going to be able to produce something on an accelerated time period. They haven't done it yet, but those are hopeful signs. One thing that the Trump administration should get credit for is that they've been trying to front load the costs in the production of the delivery systems of the vaccine so that when it does get approved and the efficacy of the vaccine um, has passed the trials, um, that there's going to be some sort of distribution system uh, at least partially in place so that we can get the vaccines to the people, as you said, military, frontline health workers, um, those essential personnel um, that we need to function, and then gradually out into the uh, to the population at large. You know, one of the things that we didn't discuss or raise last segment that does come into play here is government funding runs out on September 30th. Yep. I mean, in order for all of this stuff to continue, the political leaders got to come together, keep the government funded, so that all of these trials, all of this essential work to get America back to work, to find the vaccine, figure out a, a distribution system, needs to happen as quickly as possible. You can't do it as well with a shutdown government. And everybody needs to take a deep breath. And I think that the, the rhetoric needs to become a little bit more responsible on this issue. Well, yeah. And, and look, I mean, everything's politicized. Everything's politicized. Absolutely. And President Trump is speaking at the White House now, and he's got a chart up talking about the, the, the vaccines. And he's saying that the vaccine could be distributed by mid-October. But, but the facts is, the facts are, that it's not going to be snap your fingers, everyone can go to their local drug company and, or their local drugstore and get a vaccine. You might, it's going to be a slower, I don't even want to call it a slow rollout. It's going to be a month long to a year long rollout. And you mentioned this, and Joel, I want to bring you in on this is the, 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 we got like 90 seconds left, that through Operation Warp Speed, the United States federal government, which really, you know, They've already secured the supplies of the coronavirus vaccines that are furthest along in clinical trials, and that's those being developed by Pfizer, BioNTech, AstraZeneca, and, of course, the University of Oxford and Moderna. And, you know, it's not just the medicine. I mean, it's also the syringes, the glass, the the, the um, refrigerators for them. I mean, this is incredibly com- complex, and it's not, you know, stuff that you can figure out you know, on on tweets, you know, for, for both sides. Am I right, Joel? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I, I applaud those in the administration who are working diligently um, overtime to, to get this online. I, I just want to make the point, though, I, I, I take your point about politicization, but I do think it's important to point out that trust matters. Yes. Because you have to trust one, that the vaccine is going to be, um, that there's efficacy there, and yes. that it's going to be distributed appropriately. And I, and I do think that yes. that's a factor that has to be considered as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and the, and the vac- there's no doubt this vaccination process has been incredibly politicized uh, by, by the parties. So here we are. Coming up next, we find a rare moment of bipartisanship. I'll take you for a rare glimmer of bipartisanship on Capitol Hill. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. 
I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Uh, I'm gonna we're gonna be talking a lot about Senator Ron Johnson coming up next week about that China panel investigation. What is how will that impact the 2020 presidential race? Before we get to next week, let's get through today. Earlier today, I talked to the Problem Solvers Caucus co-chairs, Congressman Josh Gottheimer, a Democrat from Jersey, and Congressman Tom Reed, a Republican from New York. The Problem Solvers Caucus, they're a group of 50 bipartisan members in the House of Representatives, and uh, they unveiled a new fiscal stimulus compromise proposal. I got them together, socially distanced, and I asked them to tell me more about what's in the bill. Take a listen. Probably like most Americans, we, we realize that we're in an economic crisis and a health crisis. And we, can't, we simply can't afford to wait six or seven more months for us to, to decide if we're going to do anything. The co- country is hurting. Small businesses are hurting. Families are hurting. Fifty of us got together, 25 Democrats, 25 Republicans in the Problem Solvers Caucus, and said, we've got to do something about this. And, you know, and, and do provide some sort of framework to hopefully show negotiators who are, who are working on this, there is a path forward here, and, and we've, we've stumbled upon one. And we worked together until we figured one out. And that's what we put out yesterday. It's called March to Common Ground. And Congressman Reed, one of the thorny issues for Republicans has been uh, funding for state and local governments. This puts it at about $500 billion. Uh, do you think that there are, is enough Republican support on the state and local funding issue to get something over the finish line? Clearly there is, because in order for us to support this with 50 members of the Problem Solvers Caucus, you had to get 75% consensus. That's the rule of our group. And we far exceeded that. And so that shows that there's bipartisan support. And on that compromise position on state and local uh, the funding, uh, we were able to solve that by focusing on what are we looking at? Uh, we're looking at making sure that there's enough relief there for folks when it comes to COVID-19 expenses for state and local governments that are based on actual expenses, documented expenses. And then when you talk about lost revenue, uh, that that has to be documented lost revenue year over year, not projections, not projected two, three years out, but over the foreseeable future, right in the foreseeable time horizon over the next 12 months. And you have to compare pre-COVID-19 to post-COVID-19 so that it's actually documented. And because we're talking about American taxpayer dollars and you got to have a, a commitment to protect those dollars and make sure that you're actually given relief where it's most needed. So for folks, go ahead. I, mean, I was just going to say, the, the other thing that was interesting, so of course, as you mentioned, we have, we have resources around employment insurance. We said after two months of 450, it would go up to $600, but no more than 100% of wages to give states time to transition to that. We talked about more resources for PPP, $1,200 stimulus check plus money for, for children. And then um, we, we set up this whole mechanism, which was really kind of the secret sauce of it all. It said if, if in March, which is why you know, we call it March to Common Ground, if in March we're not, we haven't made significant progress in getting a vaccine out, if hospitalizations aren't down, more resources automatically kick in. We call them boosters. Um, so that would get the package to a $2 trillion package. However, if things are in a much better place, and we hope that they are, then there's a reducer. It goes down by 200. So in essence, we, we allowed room for the, 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 the virus to understand where the progress of the virus is and beating the virus. And that's what we're really focused on, putting facts on the table. See, it's, it's, I guess my follow-up question here is to, for folks outside of Washington, the differences between what the, the mainstream press has really driven this narrative of $500 billion from Leader McConnell versus upwards of 2 to $3 trillion from Speaker Pelosi. So worlds apart. I mean, not even for Wall Street investors, but also, Congressman Reid, for, for just mom and pop shops, Main Street. They can't wrap their head around these numbers. And, and, and that was 
also the difference that we did when we went into the room and negotiated this over the last six to eight weeks, is we didn't focus on the top line numbers. What we did is we got to the substance and looked at reports, looked at data, and said, what do people need for the foreseeable future? Getting us to that March kind of goal is what we were trying to focus on. And when you do that, and you, and you look at the substance of what the American people need, that was, is what drove us to these numbers. And you didn't look at a top line number and negotiate from there that a lot of people are kind of thinking of in a traditional business deal. That's not what we did. We looked at the substance. I want to put this question to you first and then just jump right in, uh, Congressman Gottheimer. I don't want to, you know, I know you're not going to criticize leadership or, or even the polarization of the two parties, but is there a frustration that that in this situation, when you've got the central bank, Fed Chair Jay Powell calling for more stimulus, you've got just walk down Main Street in America and see small businesses that are hurting, families that are hurting. Is there a frustration that there just can't be some type of I'm, stimulus? I'm a, frustration is an understatement. It's Don't unc- say the word it's, you want to say. It's un- <laughs> exactly. It's unconscionable that we would do nothing and leave town and not actually help folks. I mean, we all have constituents who are telling us, you know, families, we've got 14% unemployment in New Jersey, 21% of independent restaurants have gone out of business already in Jersey. Businesses are going out, small businesses, families are hurting, they're having trouble putting food on the table, and that's why we focused also on WIC and SNAP and other food safety programs to make sure people are okay. And we looked at each other and said, we, we have to find a way forward. There's absolutely no way we can go home without it. It's, and, and frankly, we found there's a path forward here. We're trying to show that, listen, if you talk to each other, there is a way forward. Please go back to the table, use this framework as a starting point, and let's, let's get this done. And, and the good news is we saw yesterday, and I was glad to see the speaker's public comments, that we're going to stay here until we get the COVID-19 deal done. And then we saw Mark Meadows um, issue positive comments about the Problem Solvers Caucus proposal. This is a worthy uh, proposal for consideration. My understanding is we're probably going to see some more positive conversations out of the White House today about let's get in the room and let's finish this for the American people. And if we're, and I believe this proposal uh, has been part of that thawing of this gridlock. That's good because that's good for the American people, and that's Congress doing its job. So you think that we could have a vote on this, or or, or is this starting a conversation, as you said, the thawing? Do you think we're going to get a vote? When timetable do you think? I, I personally think, as, as, and as Tom just said, given what we've heard out of the White House and, and good news out of Democratic leadership, that, there, that there's an interest in staying here to get something done. That means we're going to get something done before we go home, before the election. I mean, people can't, and that's the whole thing, as you said, like people just can't afford to wait until after the inauguration to get help, right? I mean, whether, whether you're a small business, whether you're, it's a family, whether you're a state and local government, can't afford to pay cops and teachers, right, and firefighters. These are real issues, and if we don't do something about it, we're going to have, you know, this crisis is not going away overnight, so we've got to help people. Totally agree. Uh, that's why it's imperative we do this now and we get it done. And this is the time frame. Uh, we have three weeks. We're here. And, and, the, and, the, and the proposals that are out there are well-versed. They're well out there. And people know what they are here in Congress. And it's just about finishing the dials, finishing the fine-tuning. And that's why we recognize we're not the final negotiators. That's why it's up to the White House, the leadership on both sides in the Senate and the House. And we've been talking to them throughout this whole process. We have a commitment. We don't want to surprise anyone in the work that we're, we're doing here. And at the end of the day, they can move these dials to an appropriate place. And I'll just add to that, you know, part of the whole conversation we've had the last six weeks and how led by Dusty Johnson and Dean Phillips, uh, two members of Congress uh, that we worked very close with in the caucus, with Abigail Spamberger, Anthony Gonzalez. So there's a whole group of us that have gotten together and said, let, let's, just, let's just figure it out. Let's stay in the room. And that's really what we hope to encourage 
uh, leadership to do and folks who go back to the negotiators go back to the table is, hey, here's a great framework. Stay in the room. Don't go home until we get to, until you say, here's, here's a way forward. We're all ready to vote. We're ready to go. We think this is a very sensible, reasonable, bipartisan way forward. That was uh, my exclusive interview with the chairman of the Problem Solvers Caucus. The Problem Solvers Caucus is, of course, a group of bipartisan members up on Capitol Hill. I had a couple of takeaways from it, you know, from uh, Josh Gottheimer, Democrat from Jersey, uh, uh, Tom Reed, a uh, Republican from New York. I mean, the big thing is that Speaker Pelosi is saying that that she's going to keep the House in session until until they get to some type of deal. And so publicly, while... Uh, Democratic leadership in the House has kind of politely-ish rolled their eyes at this proposal. It is the first time that moderates in both parties have said, you know what, here's our deal. Here, Here's where we think you, you all should get. Now, Mark Meadows, who, of course, is the president's uh, acting chief of staff, also, we should note, was one of the founding members of the ultra-conservative Freedom Caucus, He's actually said that it's a it's a proposal worthy of de, of of debate. Uh, so the White House is a little bit more receptive of this uh, than than what we've seen from the Democrats in terms of political strategy argument. It could provide some cover for moderates and districts, both Republicans and Democrats, to say that they were able to get on board with this. But you know, I, I think as a policy mechanism. It presented something that could be in an ultimate deal, which is a sunshine clause or uh, a massive clause. Uh, and yeah, coming up, I just want to cut into some breaking headlines from President Trump. He says he's going to get a briefing on TikTok deal tomorrow morning. He's not prepared to sign off on anything related with TikTok. Much more coming up next on all of that. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Did anybody watch that uh, ABC News George Stephanopoulos town hall with uh, President Trump and now Biden's tonight? So it'll be fascinating to see. What what goes on? What goes on in these town halls? I don't know. Does anybody watch them? I, I think everyone's holding out for the debates, you know. And I uh, we're going to be at all the debates, so we're going to have continuing coverage cross platform uh, on the terminal, Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio, and the like. Uh, and I just want to hit these breaking headlines that cross the Bloomberg terminal just within the last five minutes. President Trump says he's going to get a briefing on the TikTok deal tomorrow morning. And the president also saying at the White House just within the last 10 minutes that he is not prepared to sign off on anything until he gets the details. So CIFIA is still not out with their specific ruling as it relates to TikTok and Oracle. We should note that there was a group of Republican senators that actually came through earlier today. They wrote the White House and they said not so fast. They've got some concerns about uh, Larry Ellison's Oracle taking uh, on taking over TikTok and whether or not they would actually have a minority stake in the company or if Oracle would have that majority stake or if ByteDance 
would still get that majority stake. So there's been all this reporting. Slayer Mosin doing excellent work for Bloomberg on this. Uh, you know, is it jobs? What number of jobs would be in the United States upwards 25,000? You know, we don't know. We just don't know. But I, we're following that story very, very closely. I, I do want to point out just the continuing tensions between the U.S. and China. The Treasury Department also announcing some uh, some sanctions against uh, a, a Chinese construction firm that was posing as a tourism. Get this. They were posing as tourism for Cambodia and Africa, but then ultimately they were trying to make a military base. So the tension still mounting between the U.S. and China. It's time now for my favorite part of the program. What's on your radar? And I've got a good one today that was sent to me by our executive producer, the indefatigable Christine Barada. Joel Payne's with me, Democratic strategist, former director of African-American media outreach to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. And William McGinley returns. He's the principal at the Vogel Group, former White House cabinet secretary and former deputy counsel at the Republican National Committee. William McGinley, what's on your radar? Look, with the Big Ten announcing that they're going to yes. resume football next month, uh, my, Penn State what's on is my back. radar is... Where where's the Pac-12? It's the Power <laughs> Five conferences. We've now got four. We need the fifth to come online. Yeah, uh, Pac-12 has entered into an agreement with a daily rapid testing company. I think it's the precursor, <laughs> hopefully, for them to come back and play. And maybe we can have an old-fashioned Rose Bowl again with the Pac-12 versus the Big Ten. Uh, with the two conference champions. You know, I, I just got to say, they played football back in 1918 during the during the last pandemic, so I don't understand why college football is trying to get out of this. But huge news uh, with regards to, uh, to everything going on with the Big Ten. And, and listen, after my Eagles just absolutely blew it to the, to the, the team that literally shall not be named... <laughs> I mean the Washington football team. Uh, I need maybe maybe I can start rooting for for Penn State. Maybe I'll I'll lift my spirits. That's a great one, Joel Payne. What's on your radar? Well, what's on my radar? You mentioned a bit before. It's the president did this town hall um, in Philadelphia last night. I know a town that's near and dear to your heart. Oh, it's so and near and dear. Really, to my heart. Um, really, really tough questions. Um, not from reporters, but from um, average undecided American voters. And you know, I thought the one that was. Uh, the most interesting was the inter- the interaction he had related to the mask and something that uh, CDC Director Redfield had to come out and really issue a correction to today. Um, I think the president really continues to scuffle on coronavirus, and it's not just a partisan issue, but it really is an issue of can the president get this race and get the kind of the uh, focus of kind of the American zeitgeist off of his handling of coronavirus. When he has moments like that, I think this is going to continue to dog him all the way up to Election Day. Well, you know, Tom Keene made me want to have a cheesesteak for breakfast today. You know, I was saying to our to our colleagues on Bloomberg Surveillance earlier, he's he's grilling me about Oracle, he's grilling me about logarithms, and then he's like, "Was it Pat's or Geno's on that, that President Trump had on that on that cheesesteak?" I said, "Listen, I zoomed in, I looked at the cheese." And I think it's Pat's. But listen, anyone, tell Kellyanne Conway that she should have taken him to Tony Luke's. What do I know, right? Just a kid from Delco. <laughs> um, but I do want to note, I mean, you picked up on something. And, and I just want to ask you about this before I tell you what's on my radar. When I look at the polls, the pandemic is still driving the conversation, not the economy. And I keep drumming home this point because whether it's with – and China's not – catching on yet i think next week with senator johnson that that conversation could shift 
But when I look at the polls, it's still the pandemic and not the economy. Am I wrong, Joel? Am I wrong? William McGinley, Joel, you go first. You're absolutely right. It's the, it is the thing that is cratering everything for this president, and it's controlling every week of this race. It's why two weeks ago the president wanted to talk about unrest and protest in Wisconsin because he knows that every week he has to talk about coronavirus is a week that's a bad week for him because the public is not on his side. The, the, the rest of this race will be a battle for who can get the week focused on what they want to talk about. Is the economy, is it the coronavirus, is it something else that we haven't thought about yet? William, I tell you, Kevin, I would tell you that they're not mutually exclusive. Uh, the pandemic and the economy are totally related. And I'd also throw in uh, some of the civil unrest because there's a pandemic overlay on that as well. I think that you when you when you defeat the virus, the economy comes back, conditions improve both in urban and rural America. So I think they're all related. This is the ultimate kitchen table election. If you look at everything that families are worried about, whether it's family security, including their health, whether it's jobs, education for their children, it's all related to the pandemic. You can't separate any of these issues. Uh, it's, you know, you're wrong, though, William, because it's a, you, you forgot something. It's a socially distanced kitchen table yes. election. You know, yes. And hey, when I was up on Capitol Hill with, with Congressman Gottheimer and Congressman Reed, I, we, we were all socially distanced. We, you know, we all stood apart. You know, and I we got to respect that. All right, here's what's on my radar. Jersey Shore. This is the first year, folks, that I haven't been to the Jersey Shore. You know, I'm not going to those beaches after I saw those pictures. You kidding me? Uh, Jersey Shore crowd stokes fear with jump in teen COVID cases. Don't worry. This is on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg. I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal about the Jersey Shore. Elise Young reports, New Jersey health officials warned of the novel coronavirus spreading among younger residents, citing a climbing rate of positive tests amongst those ages 14 to 24 and a massive gathering this week outside of the home where MTV's Jersey Shore was filmed. Positivity among 14 to 18-year-olds has more than doubled to 7% from 3% in August, this according to the uh, uh, Jersey Health Commissioner. And the increase was even greater among the 19 to 24 sets to 7.1% to 2.7%. Governor Phil Murphy said the latest figures are roughly three times higher than for the general population statewide. I mean, I don't understand. Don't go party outside of the MTV Jersey Shore House if you're in Jersey. I've got nothing against Seaside Heights. I know it very well, but I, I you can't do it. And I, William McGinley, you're a Republican. I got to give you the final word on this. Am I wrong or am I right? No, you're right. Everybody needs to play their part. It's a whole of America approach. Be responsible because the actions you take may not impact you, but they're going to impact your family members, friends, and your coworkers. Everybody has a role to play here. Don't do stupid things. All right. And listen, you know, we can all wait one more summer. My thanks to Joel Payne, Democratic strategist, uh, as well as William McGinley, principal at the Vogel Group. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for uh, joining me for the hour, as well as to Congressman Josh Gottheimer, Tom Reed, and uh, Rick Grinnell, as well, for joining us. Coming up tomorrow, more policy and politics. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, and thank you for listening to Bloomberg 99.1. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.